Have you ever wondered what it's like to perform an autopsy? Ever wanted to know how accurate your favorite crime drama is? If you're brave enough, join, join us inside the morgue. Welcome to Inside the Morgue. We're your hosts and autopsy techs, Jess and Alice. Today's episode is very autopsy-based, which we are very excited to talk about. And the show we're watching this week is Harrow, Season 1, Episode 2, titled Ex Amino. So, let's get into it. So, we start this episode with three girls who look like they run on some kind of track team, and they're trying to find a shortcut to go on their run, and they stumble upon a dead body along their path. It's always like someone who's out jogging. Maybe I should go out jogging more. Maybe I should just go outside more and maybe I'll find a dead body and fulfill my life's dream. That would likely increase your chances of finding a dead body if you go outside more. <laughs> I guess that's, I mean, I guess that makes sense why it's always someone who's jogging. I'm either going to find the dead body or be the dead body. No, you can't be the dead body. <laughs> I ran a half marathon and when I was training for it, I never stumbled upon a dead body. You would have been the first person I told. Did you run in the woods? No, because I, I was afraid of becoming a dead body, so I didn't run in the woods. <laughs> <laughs> I ran in very well-lit, populated areas, so I wasn't going to just <laughs> stumble across the body. So, meanwhile, Harrow is examining the bones that they had pulled from the river in the last episode. The chief is deciding on whether to keep Harrow working on this case or to put one of the other pathologists on the case who has more experience in orthopedics. She keeps Harrow on the case, and they get back to it. Harrow goes to the morgue with an officer and an investigator there to look at the bones more closely. There was a finger bone deliberately severed, and it was possibly done post-mortem. The divers at the river are still looking for the skull, so they won't have that at the morgue yet. It's difficult to say how long the body was in the water for, but based on the condition of the bones, it's estimated between two to six years. So bodies in water will decompose differently than other bodies that are exposed to air, and we've seen this on a few cases that we've worked on, and... They are gnarly. The smell alone is so much different, and it's absolutely awful. Different in a much worse way. Yes. Like, <laughs> it's unreal how difficult it is to stand in the room. Yeah. And I think, I don't know if this was just me mentally, but in cases like that, it's usually with a decomp case that I'll eventually, like, my nose will just shut down and I'll, like, be fine after a couple of minutes in the room mm -hmm. it didn't happen with a water case it doesn't no. happen the smell i mean the one that we worked on he was found in a bathtub which is kind of different than the situation that they were in he was in an outside river but still that smell just lingered in the room for days yeah i couldn't forget it i'll never forget that case so uh, there are some factors that affect decomp in water, and these include water depth. So generally, the deeper the water is, the colder it is. And water temperature, so if the water is colder, that allows for a slower body decomposition. The water currents could be really strong, and therefore the body could travel over a long distance, and the body could also potentially be scraped up along things like tree limbs and rocks, or even the bottom of the water. 
And animals in the water, like fish or turtles or even microorganisms, can speed up the rate of decomp. So overall, the submersion of a body in water tends to slow down decomp, assuming there is no wildlife. So it is difficult to determine just how long the body has been in the water based on all of this. And fun fact, once the body is removed from the water, the body will experience an increased rate of decomp compared to other bodies, if we can call that fun. <laughs> I was just going to say, I don't know if that's really a fun fact. Depends on your <laughs> definition. But it is a fact. <laughs> Forensics fact. <laughs> Back to the show, the amount of missing persons from the last two to six years is a lot of cases to go through. They have no clue who this person is that they have on the table. They are also missing a bunch of bones from the body, the top vertebra, the clavicle, the patella, and the skull. This victim wasn't beheaded because there's just no sign of that. Just a little clarification here, a living person is beheaded and a dead person is decapitated. So like, if the head is cut off and the person was alive during that, that is called a beheading. And if they were deceased and then their head is removed that's decapitation another not quite fun but a fact another forensic fact skulls after time will decay and therefore will detach and just roll around especially in a river with a really strong current for their sectioning at the exam they'll need a big bone like the humerus and i don't think we mentioned this before but this body is basically covered and stuck in concrete so it looks pretty murdery i definitely Need to go back and rewatch the first episode to see exactly how they found this body. I saw it quick in like the flashback at the beginning of the episode on like the previously on Harrow section. Harrow suggests taking a bone from the concrete like a femur. And he mostly suggests this because he was the one who did this to the victim. He, I like, I was confused during that. I don't know if he actually did it or if he was just the one to kind of dispose of the body that they showed in like the super quick flashback in the beginning. I Okay, yeah, I saw that in the beginning and I was like, is he just imagining himself in the place of the killer or did he actually do this? I don't know. I don't know like the time frame of it. Like that could have been years ago because this body was in the water for two to six years. Yeah, true. There's a lot happening in this first episode that we haven't watched. I <laughs> know, there's a lot that we missed in the first episode. <laughs> Which none of it is really relevant to the overall theme of the episode but it's yeah, just like little the main snippets. crime <laughs> the main crime that happens in the episode doesn't have to do with this he then gets called out to the scene from the beginning of the episode red flag because as we've talked about before many pathologists are not the ones that go to crime scenes a lot of them are just in the morgue busy doing autopsies or writing reports and they they don't have the time to do that and go to scenes there are specific people and jobs out there that go to scenes and investigate suspicious deaths so he concludes that this decedent that the runners had found had been there for a few hours, and he feels the skin, which feels to be ambient temperature. What he's talking about here is algor mortis. So algor mortis is the third stage of death, and it is the change in body temperature post-mortem until the ambient temperature is matched. So like until the body temperature decreases to match the environmental temperature. So this is generally a steady decline, but the outside environmental factors can affect this change. There isn't much hypostasis, which is the accumulation of fluid or blood in the lower parts of the body due to gravity, and there's not much blood left in the female victim at all. But there isn't any blood spatter around her. They think she was dead when she was cut open. And you know how we know this? Because dead men and women don't bleed. That would make sense if she was dead before she was cut since there is a lack of blood spatter. Guys, come on. This is our catchphrase. So the cut on her chest looks like it's from a really sharp knife. An incised wound is what they're talking about here. This is also known as sharp force trauma. So this wound is caused by a sharp object that contains a blade with at least one sharp edge. 
The difference between an incised wound and a stab wound is the fact that an incised wound is longer than it is deep and a stab is deeper than it is long. So I'm going to call out a green flag here because the officer at the scene with Harrow is taking photos of the body before moving her position, which is exactly how it should be done. Well, I guess actually she should take a long-range photo of the scene to show where the body was in a large-scale picture, and then a mid-range photo of the body, and then close-up and overall photos. We're all about that. But, you know, we'll just take what we can get with these shows, because a lot of time they don't even show you taking photos. Other investigators find the woman's car along the side of the path, and she was a rideshare driver, and her name is Philippa Wedberg. She is 40 years old and a single mother. Her phone is still in the car. The officer orders the team to rope off another area of the path near the car, and this woman looks like she was possibly running from something. On the path, they find a broken fence with a piece of fabric stuck on it, most likely from the woman's jacket. Harrow and the officer just walk right past this piece of evidence, so red flag for them, because I think they should have collected it right away. Or they should have told CSIs to collect it. The path past the fence leads to the edge of a rocky hill where the woman's body is at the bottom. Either she was pushed or she fell. It's possible that the fall killed her. They look down at the dirt and see a shoe print. And a few feet over, they see another shoe print with a weird shape at the top of the print. Another red flag because no one photographs this. They should have at least taken photos of this and tried to lift the print while they were there. If they were going to photograph this shoe print, they would need to use oblique lighting, which uses a light source positioned at a low angle. Oblique lighting shows detail by creating shadows on the surface of the evidence. They successfully unlocked the woman's phone and got a name from her last customer. And a SWAT team goes to this guy's house and they arrest him. They arrested this guy, but he's claiming to have no knowledge of what happened and says that his phone was stolen that night. They bring in the victim's body to the morgue on a gurney and in a body bag. Finally, there's a show with a budget for body bags. I was very excited (laughs) to see body bags. I was so excited to see a body bag. (laughs) My expectations are so low. The bar is on the floor. (laughs) (laughs) And they prep her for autopsy. I also love that Harrow was playing music during his autopsy because... Uh, We do that all the time. I made a note of that, too, but I also made a note that the music was kind of creepy. It was like weird old-timey music. Maybe in Australia they do it different. It made me think of Autopsy of Jane Doe when it kept like flickering from their actual music to like her creepy (gasps) old-school witchy music, and I was like, are we about to get haunted? (laughs) (laughs) We play a little different music in our morgue. (laughs) Yeah, we play bops in the morgue. Also, a huge green flag because everyone had proper PPE. We love to see it. Everyone's being safe. I even saw a face shield, which sometimes we don't even get that. Face shield, they had scrubs and like uh, scrub hats. Round of applause for Harrow and the team. Love it. And they were also taking photos, which is another green flag too. They're doing their overall photos of the body, as is before they remove the clothing. The skin on the left and right palm heels are abraded or scraped, which would be consistent with falling as she was running. Another green flag, they actually take her prints, which I haven't seen another show take fingerprints before. Now we do fingerprints for our cases too, but we just have like an ink pad and... It's like a long piece of paper and it has five sections for five fingers, so there's one for the right hand and one for the left hand. Yeah, oh, like a fingerprint card, yeah. So, but they have a handheld fingerprint device, which is kind of what our county detectives use, and this scans every person in a local database to confirm an identity. I think that they were just using this to kind of document her prints to have on file, not to search for her identity because they already ID'd her. 
They also use an endocam to examine a cut on the woman's chin, and an endocam is a high-definition endoscopic camera system that allows you to see in really small places during surgeries. Now, this is something that we don't have in our morgue, and I've actually never seen this used in any case that I've ever worked on, so this might just be for TV. Yeah, I've never seen it. But the cut isn't from a branch because it's too neat and it's more triangular-shaped. Someone possibly held a knife to the woman. They then start to undress the body, and I'm going to give a red flag here just because they put the clothes in plastic bags. Now, for most cases, we would do the same thing. We would put the clothes in like a red plastic biohazard bag that at the end of the case, the bag of clothes would go back into the body bag and then get sent with the body when the funeral home picks them up. But this may be a homicide case that they're working on, so I think they should have put the clothes in paper instead of plastic. So they limit the amount of destruction done to the DNA on the clothes, if there's any DNA on the clothes that they're going to test, because plastic bags create moisture inside, and this creates more bacteria, and therefore the bacteria, like, eat away at the DNA. And there's no sign of sexual trauma, but they'll swab to confirm that. The body has one large incision just beneath the left clavicle parallel with and five centimeters left of the sternum. It is 17 centimeters long. It's clean and a confident cut, almost like the person was experienced. The cut wasn't jagged, like how a laceration would be. So the killer wasn't trying to cut her heart, but might have been trying to cut something from the heart. And one other red flag before the actual autopsy, the evisceration part begins, Harrow's assistant is going to plug in the bone saw. Mind you, it's not plugged in yet. And in the background, we hear, like, a drill noise that's like a noise. Yeah, like he's testing it out. <laughs> yeah, like he's testing it out. It's not a drill. It's a bone saw. It doesn't go all the way around. It just, like, jiggles back and forth really, really fast. And it wasn't even plugged in. It wasn't plugged in. He was literally plugging it in. And the noise was like, just like whatever generic noise the sound department could find. They're like, this is good. <laughs> yeah, any generic drill noise. Oh, that's what it sounds like. It. It's not what it sounds like. <laughs> Obviously, it has to be plugged in for it to even make noise. True. The timing was off. Anyway, Harrow is now in the middle of the autopsy, and he's doing his dissections and sectioning for histology, which is a green flag because he's putting his sections into cassettes to make the histocytes, which is something that is actually done at autopsy that we assist on. The histology slides contain tissue that was properly sampled, fixed, processed, embedded, and stained, and a pathologist or doctor will take histosections to help identify if there's any abnormality in the tissue structure or characteristic change to the tissue itself. So what we'll do during cases, we'll set up the cassettes for the pathologist to put their tissue sections in. Some of them label it, some don't. They just know what they're looking at because they've been doing it for so long. And then I'll send out the cassettes to our histology lab that we work with. And these cassettes are fixed in formalin. And the lab that we work with will then make the slides and then send it back to us. And there's a bunch of different stains that we can request to help kind of detect different things depending on what the pathologist is looking for in the tissue. But the most common stain that I send out for is the H&E stain, and it's kind of like a purple-blue stain to it. And his assistant asks if she's ready to be closed or sutured up, and Harrow can't help but wonder if he's missing something. The camera pans to their whiteboard body diagram, which is another green flag. It has all of the case notes and information on the victim, and the body diagrams are one of the most useful pieces of evidence aside from the photos, but it's just another documentation tool that we use to help our investigators and the police or whoever might need 
copies of our reports and paperwork to go along with the case. I meant to make a note about this, too, and I wanted to go back and double check, and I totally forgot. I think, was the body diagram for a male body, though? I don't remember. I think I, like, remember watching and being like, that's weird. I thought the victim was female, and they're showing, like, a male body diagram. But now I can't remember. I wonder if they just had, like, a generic person on the board that they use for all cases right but maybe we have specific male body diagrams for males and female body diagrams for females Mm -hmm. and there's also like uh pediatric diagrams as well yeah and then there's different angles of the body too like the most common ones that we use are ap anterior posterior sides so the front and the back but there's also lateral so you can see like both right side and left side of the body too there's also just diagrams for like the head and there's also organ diagrams or like every organ and yeah I didn't think to look that hard at the body diagram, but I probably should have, because now I'm questioning if I I don't think it was a female. Wow. But maybe you're right. Maybe it was just like a generic body, because they have, it was like on a whiteboard, right? Yeah. So maybe they just have like a generic body on like one whiteboard for every case. I mean, every lab and morgue works different, so. So anyway, Harrow gets a call to meet his officer friend at a bar, and he leaves the autopsy and goes there. So I'm not sure if a pathologist, like, they were still in the middle of the autopsy. I don't know if they finished and then he went, or if he just, like, up and went. He still had PPE on. He had, like, a full face shield still, like, about to, like, be pulled down on his face when (laughs) he just bails. (laughs) So the guy that they arrested, who was Philippa's last ride, claims that he lost the phone at this bar. So they go and look through the security footage from the bar that night, and this guy on the footage put his phone down on the bar and looked away from it, and then someone came up and picked it up without him even knowing. They don't get a good look at his face on the camera, but back at the office, Harrow's going through the autopsy photos, and he's asking his assistant if they're doing any testing on the victim's sternum skin and substernum tissue. So your sternum is a flat bone in the middle of your chest, and it helps protect your organs of your torso from injury, and your substernum tissue is just the tissue underneath your sternum, so sub in anatomy terms is under. They want to test this in case she was shot, They want to look for any bullet wipe. So for gunshot wounds, cases that come into our morgue, we see this a lot. And it's just this gray black ring around the entrance bullet hole. And this ring is formed by and contains bullet lubricant, byproducts of propellant, traces of bullet metal, and residue in the gun barrel from previous uses. He tells the assistant to maybe skip the analysis from the bones that was pulled from the river and to focus on this case instead. The victim's daughter then comes to the office to see her dead mother. Harrow says that, yes, she could see her, but right now she's a patient. And he uses the term patient, and, like, I've definitely used this term before when I talk about cases to other people who just, who don't work in the field and don't kind of understand what I'm doing. But obviously, the people in the morgue are dead and they're not getting better. But patient's just such a generic term used within the medical field that forensics is kind of adapted into like our own sense of things and he goes on to say that he obviously can't make her mother better and it does make him angry but his job is to not be angry or sad his job is to find out how she died so that they can find out who did this and i really loved the scene and the writing that they did on the scene because it's such a true statement We're autopsy techs, not pathologists, but everyone in the morgue is working on the case and we're all on the same team and we also, we all have the same end goal for every case that we work on. We want to work together to find out 
how this person died and what exactly happened to them. In our line of work and in our jobs, we have to be strong enough to handle the tough cases and situations for the victims and for their families. So this scene alone is a green flag in my book. You definitely have to kind of like he's I liked when he said he's like my job isn't to be angry or sad even but he did admit that it made him angry but he's like but I can't be angry or sad because we do have emotions and we've talked about this before but we have to like shut them off yeah at certain points to be able to do our jobs and I'll turn them back on again later and I'll feel my feelings later Mm -hmm. and I think I was there's there's been a couple of cases that have almost gotten me emotional during the exam and I think there was one time I looked at you, like we saw something that like made me emotional and I like looked at you and we looked at each other and you're like, we'll cry about it later. And I was like, we'll cry about it later. And then like we just continued doing what we needed to do. Because we're all on the same team. So we have to be strong for each other too. And we have to be strong for the person that we're working on, the patient, Mm -hmm. to, to speak for them when they can no longer speak for themselves, you know? Yeah. This was, I really liked the scene. It was very true to how it actually is working in this field. So he tells the daughter again that it's up to her if she wants to see her mother, and she says no. Another thing to add here, and we've mentioned this before, families that come to our office are not brought into the morgue to see their loved ones. We don't do facial IDs or anything like that at our morgue. All of that is done at a funeral home where the person is made to look more presentable for the family. There's some cases that come in and they're just super messy or they have lacerations or wounds on them. And funeral homes are amazing and they work really hard to cover up those injuries and clean up the bodies as best they can so that the family can have like a good last memory of their loved one. So uh, families do come to the office to view the autopsy report or have a meeting with pathologists sometimes when the case is finalized. And I think that we don't let them view the body because I think most people who don't work in the field don't understand exactly what goes on during an autopsy. The fact that we do a Y incision or that we have to sometimes cut the head for a brain exam. And we do the cuts so that we get the body to the funeral home. The family won't see any of that once the body is ready to be viewed. But at our morgue, those cuts can't really be hidden and there's a lot of questions that the family would have and it's not the best time to try and understand why that would be done because they're still grieving and it's it's a lot for someone to take in so it's just best that all of that is done elsewhere after the patient has been prepared by a funeral home so back to the show Harris starts thinking more about the case and gets an idea. He goes back to the morgue to re-examine the victim's heart. The heart was removed and sampled earlier that day. They did a CAT scan of the heart, which is something we wouldn't do at our morgue, but I've seen or I've heard of like CAT scans being used more in autopsies. Yeah. It's really cool that they do this kind of thing with it. We don't have one at our morgue, but... We're getting a new building soon, and I think that was in the talks of us getting a CAT scan machine to use for like instances like that. Also, getting a Lodox, which is a machine that does full-body x-rays. Mm-hmm. And when they scanned the heart, they identified a small foreign object. He makes a cut into the heart and removes a splinter of wood. Doing more research on this tiny piece of wood... It's called European ash and is favored by traditional European Fletchers for making arrow shafts. Now, I don't know if I just missed part of the episode, but did he just know this? Does he just have like a special interest in archery? I don't know. (laughs) I think it was more of like a cutscene after he did like a close-up look at what was like there in a microscope. And then he goes to his assistant in a cutscene and he's like, it's European ash. Like, and then he's 
spews all this information and facts, so I don't know if he really just knew this off the top of his head, if he's, like, a know-it-all. Right. Like, maybe he has a special interest in European Fletchers and their arrow shafts, because, I mean, I have certain pieces of, like, certain historical things where if somebody brings up something slightly related to it, I will just go on a tangent Mm -hmm. about all the fun facts that I know about it. For anybody wondering, my favorite historical thing to learn about is Victorian medicine because it's all just so insane. Yes. <laughs> Anytime someone brings up something that I can talk about. The butchering art, is that Victorian medicine? Yes. I love that book and I will talk about that book with anybody who wants to talk about it because it's so crazy. The stuff, like, and yes, Victorian era was long ago, but like, only like 200 years or so and like the crazy stuff people were doing in medicine sorry now i'm see i'm going on a tangent see yeah see now i'm just gonna be yeah now we're getting sidetracked i was just looking for any excuse to talk about victorian era medicine (laughs) like like i always do so back to the show the victim was shot by an arrow if the arrow had a barbed head it wouldn't be able to be pulled out so it would have had to have been cut out In the process of cutting it out, the killer nicked off a bit of the arrow shaft. They now have to find out who sells this type of arrow shaft. Now, red flag, because the pathologist and what I'm assuming is his autopsy tech, or whoever's performing like autopsy tech duties here, would not be the ones tasked with finding out this information. This would most likely be the job of an investigator. But if you remember the weird-shaped imprint on the shoe impression from the original crime scene, Harrow thinks this may have been from a crossbow. So crossbows sometimes need to be cocked by the user by putting a foot into a stirrup and drawing the string up to the nut. European ash was commonly used to make the crossbow bolts in the Middle Ages. See, maybe Harrow just loves Middle Age history. (laughs) Like, I love Victorian history. (laughs) So a European medieval crossbow is a very unique identifier. Harrow and his police officer friend go to a local bow and arrow maker who makes bows with European ash. This guy sold the crossbow to someone and did everything off the book so that it couldn't be traced. He gave this crossbow away in exchange for a sexual favor, which is why all the stuff was off the books. It was a man and a woman he gave the crossbow and bolts to. Also, fun fact, for a crossbow, they're not called arrows, they're called bolts, which is something that I learned in school. I never knew that. Off of the filmed role play that they did, they get the face of the man that they are looking for and his supposed girlfriend. Nothing was found at their home and their DNA wasn't found anywhere, so they were let go. Hera notices that something is wrong with the male person of interest's left hand, and he comes to find out that he had attempted suicide as a teenager and severed the tendons in his left wrist. Harrow thinks that someone is protecting this guy and his girlfriend and that he wasn't the one who shot the victim. This is where the show takes kind of a weird turn. So Harrow just finished searching this guy in the girlfriend's room and he found a box with a weird candle in it and he took it back to the morgue. He cuts into the candle and takes the wick out and the wick is made of human skin. So a student at a local college was expelled for stealing cadaver parts, and Harrow just found out who it was. It was the bartender from the bar where the guy's phone was taken in order to get a ride from the victim. You know, they showed her, too, when Harrow went to the bar with the police officer. Yeah, he gave her... They did, like, a quick little scene. Yeah. And I was like, ah, she's just a bartender. She's not gonna be important. She, like, gives him a shot. Yeah. I think he was, like, (laughs) trying to flirt with, like, the police officer friend lady, and she she kind of like playfully didn't she in her own flirty way just like walked out and she was like oh tough break and like gives him a shot or something 
You thought it was just an innocent bartender. Nope. Plot twist. (laughs) She makes human skin candles. (laughs) Disgusting. (laughs) I know. Like, what a weird turn. Why was that a plot twist there? (laughs) I mean, I did not see it coming. So Harrow goes to her home and finds arrows in a tree in the backyard or bolts. I don't know which ones they were, actually. I don't know if she also had a bow and arrow. He also finds human body parts in her basement and then she comes around the corner with her crossbow in hand so it was clearly her and she's pointing it at harrow so this girl and the boy that they had just let go from police custody were hunting philippa for sport the boy tried to shoot her but he couldn't because of his bad hand so after the victim fell down the rocky hill the bartender shot her with the arrow She couldn't leave the arrow in her because it was such a rare arrow, so she cut it out and she had experience from her schoolwork in the cadaver lab before she got expelled. And I was, I mean, I worked in a cadaver lab at a school. I never learned how to cut arrows out of people's hearts. Harrow narrowly avoids an arrow that was shot at him and then the police sirens go off outside the house and the bartender and the boy are handcuffed and arrested. At the morgue, Harrow takes the victim's daughter to the viewing room so that she can see her mother one last time. He pulls the sheet covering her down, only revealing her head. Thanks to this girl's mother, they got what they needed to find the killer. So Harrow's assistant finally got the femur out of the cement from the other case in the beginning that was probably from the last episode. And Harrow isn't too happy that he actually got it out. The assistant grinded up part of the bone into a fine dust and swabbed that and put it into an evidence tube to send to an outside lab. Harrow switched out this swab with a buccal swab from someone else, which we've mentioned before is just inside of the cheek swab, so that the DNA wouldn't come back as who the person actually is encased in the cement. I need to know more about this case. I'm so curious. Yeah, Harrow, I feel like it's just a really fun show to watch, and I love that it's pathologist-based, and it has a bunch of autopsy scenes, and really weird crimes mm-hmm. that happen and i definitely want to go back and watch this first episode and like the rest of the season I know. maybe we can talk about the first episode for a certain podcast about the first episode for a certain podcast <laughs> maybe we should just watch the entire two seasons of the show the next like 12 episodes are just harrow <laughs> <laughs> this made us wonder how many true crimes are out there involving crossbows and bow and arrows And we did find one that is a very twisted and crazy story that we just had to share with you guys. So the one detail that really stuck out was obviously the crossbow being used as the murder weapon. So for this week's true crime, we're talking about Brett Ryan, also known as the crossbow killer. In 2007, Brett was 26 years old and $60,000 in debt. He lived with his family in a large house outside of Scarborough, Canada, After high school, Brett had enrolled in University of Toronto, but eventually dropped out. He made a living painting houses, and in order to resolve his debt in October of that year, Brett decided to start robbing banks. Such a dramatic, you couldn't think of anything else? It's just such a dramatic, I mean, just like the turn, it's like, yeah, he painted houses, and then robbed a bank. (laughs) That's the only solution, start robbing banks. So his first bank robbery, he wore hospital bandages around his face and had his arm in a sling. He walked into the bank carrying a stack of papers and handed the teller a note saying he had a gun in his sling and was demanding cash. The teller complied and gave him $1,115. He got away without getting caught and then continued to rob another 12 banks, stealing a total of $28,000. Brett had never been previously arrested, so although he left fingerprints at a few of the scenes, his prints weren't in the system and couldn't be traced. 
To hide his identity even further, he started wearing a high-quality fake beard and became known as the Bearded Bandit. I love that. I love that they come up with these funny little names. It had to be an alliteration. (laughs) After one robbery, police spotted his truck, and they were able to track him to his home, and by the time he went to do a final robbery, police had been trailing him for two weeks, and they were waiting to make an arrest. Brett suspected something was amiss, however, and did not rob this final bank, and left instead. But he ended up turning himself in and pleaded guilty and spent seven months in custody awaiting trial. He ended up being sentenced to five years, and with time served and early parole, he was back home with his family in late 2010. No longer able to avoid debt, Brett filed for bankruptcy. He tried to find work, but employers wouldn't hire him based on his criminal record. He tried to resume house painting, but potential clients wouldn't allow him in their homes after hearing about his record, so Brett's mother, Sue Ryan, was bothered by the fact that people in the neighborhood continued to gossip about her son. She and her husband, Bill, ended up selling their large home and moving into a small bungalow in Scarborough with Brett and his brothers. There, Brett worked in retail jobs, and with help from his parents, he re-enrolled into the University of Toronto where he studied biophysics. He also started seeing a psychiatrist, and in September of 2011, Brett was set up on a blind date by a friend with a physiotherapist named Kristen Baxter. Kristen had a good job and a nice home. She knew about Brett's criminal past, but she wasn't bothered by it. In January of 2013, Brett moved into Kristen's condo. About a year after the couple moved in together, Brett's father, Bill, passed away. He started helping his mother with odd jobs around the house for some extra cash. He proposed to Kristen, but failed to tell her and his family that he was in trouble financially again. In 2015, he dropped out of school again, and he also neglected to tell his fiance and his family about that too. In spring of 2016, Brett received an offer for a job at a tech firm in Toronto. However, within a few days of hiring him, the offer was rescinded when the firm learned about his criminal background. However, he lied to his family and let them believe that he still had a job. Brett still performed odd jobs around the house for his mother in exchange for cash and began asking her for more jobs. But even with that cash, his situation became more serious. He eventually came clean to his mother about his whole situation, how he wasn't working at the tech firm, how he wasn't in school, and about all the financial trouble he was in. His mother told him to come clean to his fiancée, Kristen, or else she would tell Kristen. She refused to give him any more money until he was honest with his fiancée. Brett did not come clean to Kristen. Instead, he purchased a crossbow, which did not require a license, and his criminal background would have made it impossible for him to purchase a firearm, so that's why he got a crossbow. During a trip to his mother's home, he left the crossbow hidden in the garage. In August of 2016, Kristen left for work, and Brett got busy building a device that he hoped would give him an alibi. Using fans, wooden spoons, and a digital timer, he rigged his laptop to stay active, and also rigged it to stay, like, on YouTube. He rigged his phone and tablet to send out pre-typed messages, and his planning was in hopes that if police were ever to attempt to triangulate his location off of these devices, it would have looked like he was at home at the time of the crime. Brett then went to confront his mother, hoping she would see his perspective. However, Sue held her ground and told him that she would tell Kristen about his lies if he didn't come clean. Brett ended up stabbing Sue with a bolt from the crossbow, and eventually strangled her to death. Before the altercation, Sue had called one of Brett's brothers, Chris, and Brett knew Chris would be arriving soon, so he loaded the crossbow, and when Chris arrived, Brett shot him with the crossbow and killed him instantly. 
However, another one of Brett's brothers, AJ, arrived home, and Brett attacked AJ with the bolt of the crossbow and stabbed him in the neck. Brett's third brother, Leland, had been sleeping upstairs and heard the altercation and came down. When he saw AJ wounded, he attempted to call 911, but he was attacked by Brett as well. The two fought, and Leland was able to get away and go to a neighbor's for help. The neighbors called the police. However, AJ died from his injuries before the paramedics arrived, but Leland was able to survive. When they arrived at the scene, Brett didn't try to fight and even admitted to everything. Brett received concurrent life sentences for the murders of his mother, Sue, and his brothers, Chris and AJ. He also received 10 years for the attempted murder of Leland. Brett will be eligible for parole in 2041. By that time, he will be 60 years old. So we got all of this information about this case from an article in Toronto Life by Mark Mann titled The Crossbow Killer. Wow. It's it's just so insane, this whole case. The fact that he was like, no, I'm not going to come clean. I'd rather kill you. It's, uh, yeah, it's dark. It's real dark. I can't. It just, it was really sad to, I mean, obviously all of these cases are horrible and sad, but like, like his whole family. He could have just asked for help. I know. <sighs> I mean, that's crazy that there's cases out there that are very similar to what these shows portray. I know. I, I It's insane because it seems like something that would be made up for TV. And then you're like, oh. Mm-hmm. Nope. It, it could happen. It's, it has scary. happened. Yeah. So we tallied a total of seven green flags and six red flags. So in our opinion, we're going to say this episode of Harrow does pass in terms of forensic accuracy. And that's the end of our episode. If you enjoy our podcast and if you want to learn more about forensics and true crime, keep on listening. You can follow us on Instagram at Inside the Morgue Pod. So feel free to follow us and DM us with any questions. We'll be back next week for a brand new dissection. Bye. Bye.